0: All right, it's about time for us to get started with our Bible study this evening. Um, oh, great work, everybody! Uh, first, the first part, you guys passed. Everybody sat in the back six rows, so uh, great work. I will give you guys a gold star, and I will let Barry know that you uh, did what he asked. I'm sure he'll be overjoyed. Uh, I'm really. <laughs> We're not re- going to
1: do it for him next week. Gonna-
0: okay, <laughs> appreciate that. Um, I'm really excited. We're gonna be talking about Daniel this quarter. I'm gonna be subbing in for Barry this evening uh, for the easy part and then he can do all the crazy, weird visions and stuff like that and explain those to you. Uh, But I'm really excited about this um, class. We're gonna try and um, change up the structure, not like hugely, but just kinda uh, do stuff like this where we're we're a little bit more uh, close together, can have some more discussion Hopefully it feels a little bit less like an an auditorium class. Um, So I'm really excited about that and excited to go through this uh, with you all. Before we begin, let's uh, bow and and pray really quickly. Father, we come before you now at the beginning of this study. We ask that you would bless us to have open minds and open hearts, that we would simply want to know you better and to strive to be more like you and to uh, be better servants of yours, Father. We're thankful for your word and the guidance that you provide us in our lives. We pray that you would uh, bless us to understand what we read and to put it into practice in our lives. It's in Jesus Christ, Mussolini, we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, here's some kind of basic things that we'd like to accomplish or approach this class. Uh, first of all, throughout the Wednesday quarter, if you want to, please—well, not if you want to. Please just do keep sitting in the back for class— After we're done with class, you guys can move to wherever you want to go in the auditorium. Um, Feel free to move forward to your normal spots. Um, But while we're in class, we want to kind of maintain this a little bit more intimate feel. Um, The second thing, if you are somebody who tends to talk a lot, try to be aware of that. Um, You know who you are. Uh, Try to... I'm not saying don't talk, but just try to not dominate the conversation, because there are introverts and extroverts in any group, and there are introvert and extroverts in this group, and you're, if you're an extrovert who likes to talk a lot, sometimes that creates a block for people who are introverted like me, who are like, I, I want to say something, but also like, I need a minute to think about this before I'm ready to talk. So if you tend to talk a lot in class, maybe you try and throttle back one or two comments, um, instead of your normal vol- volume. Does that make sense? Hopefully that doesn't sound mean. I know you guys can accomplish that. The other piece of that, if you're somebody who doesn't talk, uh, be brave. Tell us what you think. We want everybody to be able to participate in this class and to share their thoughts. Um want to be really clear. Everybody has value to provide and by uh, not sharing what you think and what you're seeing in the text, you're uh, Depriving is kind of a harsh way of saying it, but like other people will benefit from seeing your perspective. So even if you're somebody who is more introverted, I feel you I'm the same way. Try to share what you're seeing because we want to know and hear from those people who are uh, maybe a little bit more shy about participating, especially. Uh, finally, what I think we're going to do, what we 're going to do tonight and what I think Barry is going to continue to do throughout the class is having a block of time. Um, in the class, where we actually just sit and have time to independently go through the text and mark things up, um, there are books on this chair, if you haven't grabbed one already, where you can have the text. I think it's the same as the books we're using for James on Sundays, where you can go through mark things up. I put some pens and pencil, colored pencils back there. If you need those, feel free to grab them. Um, we'll do that a little bit later in the class. We'll have time to kind of go through and mark things up, just so you can spend some time with the text and see what you observe there. Um, any questions about any of that? Okay, so what we're gonna do right now is kind of speed run the historical context of Daniel, and we'll have some time to reflect on chapter one, and then we'll talk about it as a group together. So um, I tried to make this timeline. I realize also that I've made you guys sit all the way in the back and then have a slide with a bunch of very small text. So I'm gonna try and blow this up and get all the historical facts correct. So let's see how we do here. Okay, so in 722 BC, the northern kingdom, Israel, is conquered by the Assyrian Empire. I know you guys remember that. Meanwhile, in Judah, later on, Josiah becomes king. He's a good king. He's one of the good kings. I think he's the guy who's like a king when he's really young, and and he's the guy who kind of sets things straight, turns people back to the law, and... Sorry, this happened to me when I was practicing this. When I say Assyria, Assyria thinks I'm talking to her. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So Josiah becomes king, and he reigns from 639 until about um, 608. Meanwhile, Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, is now overthrown by Babylon. So northern kingdom Israel has been wiped out by Assyria. Assyria then gets wiped out by Babylon. Judah's kind of plugging along until... um, Later on, in 608, Josiah dies. His son Jehoahaz becomes king. He reigns for about three months. Jehoahaz gets captured by Egypt, and they establish Jehoiakim, his brother, as kind of their guy in Jerusalem, and they're sort of like have been semi-captured by Egypt. It's kind of a weird situation. I don't know the whole story there, ask Barry. (laughs) Um, So Jehoiakim becomes king, bad king, okay? That's the main thing there. In 605, Nebuchadnezzar, also in 608, um, Nebuchadnezzar becomes king over Babylon. In 605, Nebuchadnezzar comes to Babylon and he conquer, or comes to Jerusalem, he conquers uh, Jerusalem. And so that's the first Babylonian invasion. Um, Jehoiakim is still king. He has to pay tribute to Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar takes away a bunch of captives, and that's when Daniel and company are taken captive. Uh, Jehoiakim pays tribute for about, I think, 11 years or whatever it is. And then he decides to stop. Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, now you're in trouble, comes to invade. Jehoiakim dies right before that happens. His son Jehoiachin then becomes king, says, I'm still not going to pay tribute. And Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, well, we're going to come invade again. He's taken captive to Babylon and his younger brother Zedekiah is established as King In Jerusalem. Then in 586, there's a third Babylonian invasion. The temple is completely destroyed. Jerusalem is basically flattened. And there is complete devastation in uh, Jerusalem and in Judah. They've been completely uh, whacked, as Barry would say, by the Babylonian Empire. That's important for us to get because that's going to hit on some of the themes in Daniel. But we really want to understand that. Judah has been progressively and devastatingly leveled by the Babylonian Empire. They've just come in and completely uh, dominated them with their, um, their military might and basically have, like, have conquered them. And so that would be almost like if one of the enemies of the United States, like Russia or China or somebody like that, hopefully they're not listening, um, <laughs> like came in and, and wiped us out, and said, hey, we're in charge now and how that would be um, such a devastating experience for Americans to have their culture completely decimated in that way and to be dominated by a totally different culture that says, hey, we're, we're in charge now and we also don't really like you guys. Um, that's really important when we get to the themes of Daniel later on. And then later on in 539, that is when Babylon, the empire of Babylon, finally falls to the next empire, the Medo-Persians. Okay, so Daniel spans from 605 when the first Babylonian invasion happens, all the way to 539 when the Medo-Persians invade Babylon and conquer the Babylonian empire, and even into that uh, next Persian empire. Any questions about all of that? That was really fast. I want to make sure we have time for discussing the text. Thank you for the applause. Um, any questions about that? Is that confusing to anybody? You will not be tested on this. <laughs> I'll send you my slides later, I'll send you my slides later. Okay, sounds, sounds like we're good, good on that. Um, so some reasons for the book. This is kind of why it's important to understand the historical context and just how bad things are for uh, the nation of Judah at this time. The first thing is that there's assurance in the book of Daniel that God's continued promises to David continue in spite of the nation's fall. Um, Psalm 89 is something that talks about that. It's a psalm that looks to God's promises to David and the promise that there's going to be a Messiah, even um, in spite of the fact that it looks like there's really no coming back from that. And you can imagine if you were a Jew and this happened to you, you would be looking at what had happened to your nation and, and be wondering, is, is God with us at all? Is there any hope for us? Have we been completely forsaken? How are we going to deal with this? Um, you would be completely broken and your, your heart would be hopeless. And so it's important to understand that Daniel contains a lot of messages about God is still with uh, his people particularly those who are are righteous and putting their faith in him, even though things look really bad. The second thing is that uh, God rules in the kingdoms of men. Even when all these things are happening and Babylon is becoming this great power, it's very clear that God is the one who is really in control. God is the one who is allowing people to succeed or fail. And that that is something that God's people can put their trust in. That God is the one who rules over the nations of men. They are not able to uh, compete with him or fight against him. Uh, The third point, similar to that but kind of adjacent, God's kingdom um, will supersede all other kingdoms. That's even looking forward to today with the church and the kingdom of Christ that God is going to set up a spiritual kingdom that is going to be over all of the physical kingdoms, and that God's kingdom is going to be greater than any earthly kingdom. And then finally, there's this picture that Daniel is kind of talking about how God is going to have victory over the nations. That's something that we see in Psalm 2. It's something we see in Isaiah about that conflict between the nations of men and uh, God. The nations want to have power. They want to serve their gods because their gods give them worldly power. And it's about how uh, God is kind of in conflict with these nations who don't want to follow him. Daniel is sort of a follow-up to that in a sense that's about how God is victorious over those nations and how their rebellion against God is uh, futile. Any question on, on, questions on that or comments? All right. So that was really fast. Um, I wanted to make sure we have time to look at the text. We're going to be In Daniel chapter 1 tonight. Um, So what we're going to do is take probably eight minutes, um, and if you have, I hope everybody has some kind of Bible that they're willing to write in, Um, you can either write in your own Bible or in these books, and a writing utensil. We've got colored pencils and pens in the back if you need them, Um, but let's take maybe eight minutes, ten minutes, and just kind of have some time to uh, study the text in a little bit of quiet. All right. Hopefully that gave you guys uh, some time to be able to look at the text and hopefully dig into it a little bit. Um, the way I'd like to kind of structure this is just with the question that's on the PowerPoint, I just kind of want to get a sense of what you guys observed and talk about that, similar to uh, what we've done in previous studies. Uh, let's focus first on on the first uh, seven verses, the story of... Just Nebuchadnezzar coming in and Daniel and his friends being taken away. What do you guys notice that sticks out to you in the first seven verses? Yeah, Josh. The uh,
1: imagery of King David that seen, and handsome, royal, noble, no physical defect, that's kind of brings to mind King David.
0: Okay cool. So I, I hadn't thought about that. of the way that these young men are portrayed seems like a callback to the way that we think about King David. There's the idea that there's a connection there between their lineage and kind of where they came from. Yeah, love that. What else?:
2: Yeah.
3: God is the one in charge here. Uh, Even though Nebuchadnezzar proceeds to put his treasure into the house of God, God did it. Like
0: the Lord is the one who is in charge. Yeah, so there's a sense of, of God is the one who's really in control here. Nebuchadnezzar thinks that he's great and mighty and he's the one who's conquered Judah, but really, God is the one who's in control. And what else? What else does God give into Nebuchadnezzar's hands? Not just Jehoiakim. Yeah, stuff from the, from the temple. yeah, what do you guys think about the fact that it says God gave these vessels from the temple into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar? That stick out to anybody else? Yeah? Isaiah prophesied
2: about that the reign. Hezekiah was <laughs> there 15 more years, King Babylon said, show them the treasures of the and Mosaia's thing. This is what's gonna come of that. All of these things are gonna be given. back in They will take the work for them And so it was prophesied and small backwards came as
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So it's, it seems like it's a more or less direct consequence of Hezekiah's heart and his attitude, and I think also probably the attitude that was prevalent in Judah at that time um, of the way that they were thinking about their relationship with God. Any other comments on that? I thought it was kind of interesting just to think about the idea that uh, it seems like it's a defeat for uh, these vessels to be taken away um, But obviously, the imagery here is not that, well, Nebuchadnezzar's God is more powerful than God. The imagery, I think, is that the Israelites have failed in uh, their custody of the vessels of God, in their responsibility to be God's chosen people. And so the vessels which are part of that responsibility to worship and serve God, those vessels are being taken away from them. They're losing uh, God's presence and that... uh, relationship with God in a sense. Any other thoughts on that? Either the vessels or these first seven verses in general? general? Yeah, Alan. It reminds
1: me when the Philistines built
0: the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, yeah. It seems like a very similar situation. I thought of that as well. Yeah, yeah. Given that this
2: book is written by Daniel, I think it's interesting that he characterizes God as being the one in control. Here, I think it frames why he and his friends are able to engage while they're Framing it as God at work, God is doing something here. It's not Babylon is taking over and all of these, you know, these horrible things are happening. It's God is doing something.
0: Yeah, there's a very distinctive perspective in the way that Daniel's writing about these things that's different from what it would look like from the outside. And it seems like that perspective is directly influencing the way that he's handling. These situations, And we'll, we'll even see in chapter 2 that, is, that perspective that God is the one who's at work is a significant part of the way that Daniel approaches things. Yeah, Chad. I think it's interesting. We see the beginning of the arrogance of Nebuch-
3: Nebuchadnezzar when he put the prerequisites out there for the youth. And, you know, without blemish, good appearance. Good and knowing, you know, a few chapters later here we're going to see he turns into this wild beast. So we, we definitely see just carnal mind and heart force.
0: But yeah, that's interesting. That's a, I hadn't thought about that, but Nebuchadnezzar is kind of selecting these guys based on very external worldly uh, criteria that's like, who's gonna make me and my kingdom and my empire look the best? Like, give me those guys. Yeah, that's a great point. What else? Yeah. It's going jumping
2: a little bit, but it struck me looking back, like a little farther away, the, the vessels that were taken, to, to put in the temple of um, Nebuchadnezzar's god, these were vessels that were meant for God, for the true God's glory. And he took them for himself and, and his, his idol. But then he also took these human vessels that are for God's glory, and he chose these, you know, really beautiful ones and smart ones and kind of capable ones, you know. But they ended up um, not being as glorious for his, for his idol, <laughs> but showed God, they were vessels for God. Anyway, I that may be jumping a little bit, but that kind of, I was putting this together and it kind of made me think about the contrast between the physical vessels and the spiritual vessels that these
0: men No, I, I I don't think that's jumping at all. That's a, I think that's a great point, that parallel between the idea of the vessels being for God's glory and so are Daniel and his, his uh, friends. And it seems like they're pretty, like, well-positioned to do that. Like, these are guys who are on the track to be powerful and successful in Judah. You would think that those would be the kind of guys that would also bring glory to Babylon by taking them away. But they still are the ones who are giving glory to God. Yeah, great point. What else? Yeah. I don't, I don't know what it, if it means anything, but of, of the
2: four men of Judah that are talked about here... I think it's interesting that we always refer to Daniel by his Hebrew name, and the other we always refer to by their Babylonian names.
0: That they were yeah, that is really interesting, and I have no idea why that is. And it's really interesting. I uh, was at, used to be at a church where the preacher was very adamant, like, don't call Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by their Babylonian names. Call them by their Hebrew names, because that's what they would want. And I'm like, I get that, but also, in chapter 3, it refers to them by their Babylonian names, so it's a little bit tricky. But yeah, that's really interesting. I have no idea why that is. Um, yeah, gonna I'll say, back
2: to Sarah's point about Nebuchadnezzar reappropriating things that were for God, that name change is kind of a way of doing that as well. It's like, we're rebranding you, we're training you in the wisdom of, of the Chaldeans, we're teaching you the language, we're rebranding you, but the change of their name not change the position of their part or who serving. And so that name, in a way, was not bothersome to them They continued acting in the way that they were to act regardless of the name
0: change. Yeah, that's a great point. Because evidently, the name didn't affect the way that they thought of themselves. Yeah, Belinda.
2: That's interesting. Adding on to what Allison was saying, each one of those names, <coughs> um, the names of... Shabbeth uh, and and They were all named after idols. So when you look at the literal translation of the name, it's three different Babylonian idols. Well, actually, four because they, uh, Daniel was too. He was his name was So I think that's interesting that Nebuchadnezzar did everything he could do to just submerge them into the culture. Just to just even even changing their which just the name point of identity in a lot of ways that we have
0: our names. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because their their Hebrew names all relate back to God and and are some sort of phrase or statement about God and who He is. Um, and their Babylonian names are similar, but they're about Babylonian gods. And so. The message that goes along with the names and what's happening here in general, this idea of them being brought and being trained in the Babylonian language and culture and their names are changed and they're living in the king's palace, it seems like, and they're going to be educated and eat the king's delicacies. All of that is about Babylon asserting its authority over Judah. And you think about, okay, so you've just conquered a nation. How are you going to prevent them from rebelling? Well, the people that I would immediately want to remove from that nation and indoctrinate to my way of thinking are the people who are the richest and the smartest because they're gonna be the ones who have the best shot of developing developing some sort of rebellion or something like that. So if I can get rid of the people who have a lot of money and who are really smart and can figure out how to overthrow me and I can bring them over to my side, and if I can get the young ones who have all the energy and who kind of represent the, the vitality of the nation, if I can take those people out And so, all we have are the people who are old and poor and not very well educated. Man, that's like a pretty easy nation to rule over and I get to take all the smart people and they can come with me and help me out and I'll just indoctrinate them to my way of thinking and I'll do that by bribing them with really nice stuff and changing their names and identities so they don't attach to their old culture anymore. All of a sudden, I'm the one who's in control and I think there's a parallel there between what Nebuchadnezzar is trying to do, and the obvious strategic benefit, and how Satan tries to control us by detaching us from our identity as Christians. All right, so what about this uh, incident with eating the king's food um, in eight through the rest of the chapter? What kind of things do you all see in that section?
2: Yeah. that God made the overseer sympathetic to Daniel. Um, but he feared his king. And I just noticed like a difference in the, the mindset that comes with God versus the king. God is about love and sympathy, whereas the king just by you.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a very different uh, approach to Daniel versus the uh, the chief, whoever he is, the chief guy. Uh, the chief guy just doesn't really seem to like have any particular affection for Nebuchadnezzar. He's just the guy in charge, and if I cross him, I get my head chopped off, literally. Whereas Daniel seems to have. Genuine trust in, in God and his faithfulness. And so, even though uh, Nebuchadnezzar and God are both sort of kings in this parallel, there's a real difference in the way that these two subjects relate to their kings. Uh, Michael, you had a comment. I love
1: that just asks in verse 8. It just shows the power of asking that he could have just like protested or, you know gone on a hunger strike or whatever, but he just asks and sees what, what
0: God can do in the situation. Yeah, there's, I think, a good lesson there in how to be, maybe as Christians today, in the world and not of the world. Uh, Daniel's very res- resolved to do the right thing, but he's not going to throw a fit about it or be rebellious about it. He's actually trying to go about it in the most submissive and respectful way possible, it seems like. What else do you guys notice?
2: Just, uh, he also gave us uh, some leeway to make those choices. So that
0: make sense. Yeah, it's not it's not like God is just mind controlling this guy I to get him to do. I
2: think that this official also I think there was a he was leading the official also
0: What else? It wasn't just that
1: they didn't want to eat this
2: food. When he says to
3: file, to me, the food must have been uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, so that, that I think is an important point that maybe we take for granted. I think probably a lot of us understand that, but like maybe we don't. The issue here doesn't seem to be like, oh, I'm just like, I don't want to eat the king's food because he's the king and he captured me and I don't like him. It seems like what's going on here is the food that's being given to them would have violated the Levitical laws of what was clean and unclean, and it would have violated the law for what was right for them to eat. It probably would have been, I don't know, bacon and stuff like that. Sure, yeah. Yeah, Julie. Yeah, I thought that was interesting, and I just noticed when I was reading this again that one of the things that, that these young men were selected for, all of them, were, was that they were well-educated. So they all knew what they were and were not allowed to eat, but it seems like only Daniel and his three friends are the ones who actually hold to that conviction after they're taken into captivity. What else do you all notice?
2: Strikes me the way that Daniel handles this food situation actually sets up an opportunity for there's these little battles happening like that, like Nebuchadnezzar's trying to take the things of of the Hebrews and make them his. So he's purporting this royal delicacies as the finest thing. And so Daniel sets up this opportunity for a little trial to test out whose food is better, so to speak. And so we see the results at the end of those ten days, what that looks like. So it gives opportunity for God to win a battle,
0: a little battle, maybe, than, than food. Yeah, it's yeah, a great point. It's almost it's similar almost to like uh, Elijah and like the versus the prophets of Baal of like okay, well let's see who's is better. I like that. There's this idea here that uh, there's an opportunity for God to demonstrate His power and the fact that He is with Daniel. Yeah, I love that. What else? Yeah. I
1: He gave space for God to work, which I really like because I feel like we go so far, maybe like never test God that we don't give him that space to like, all right, God, do something here. I have to imagine like Daniel's praying and they're like, all right, like it's in it's in your hands now as to whether or not I'm gonna look better in ten days or they're gonna look better in ten days.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point, and that's something I've thought about of. The text doesn't state that Daniel knows that this is going to work. And we know that he, at some point, is given this ability to understand visions and dreams. So I don't know if he's communicating with God through visions and dreams at this point or anything that's happening. But based on the text, it seems like Daniel is just like, let's just do this 10-day test and see what happens. And it's not clear if he has, like, a concrete knowledge and faith that this is going to work and it'll actually convince them that this is an okay plan or if it's not going to work. It seems like he's, like you said, just giving God the space to work and whatever happens, happens. And he kind of doesn't have uh, another option, but it seems like the thing that's really happening here is is Daniel, whatever's going on, is trying to give this situation over to God. And It seems like God takes control because if you just eat vegetables, you shouldn't look fatter than people who are eating meat. What else? Yeah. I think what we're missing is that
1: they were already on their, quote, diet. They were eating the same thing. They weren't gonna change for the king because they already had this all set up. They knew what was gonna happen. So when he's saying, hey, test me for 10 days, he's saying, look, I've been doing this for 10 years. I'm still as big as I am now and as big
0: as they are. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. The, th- the fact that he says they're only eating vegetables make me think that this is different than just like the standard uh, like Jewish diet because it seems like he literally means only vegetables like no bread, no fish, no anything like that. Maybe it was what he was already eating. But in any case, it seems like he is convinced enough that this is the right path because God's way of doing it is going to be the right way
3: change
0: for you. Yeah, he's not going to alter his convictions or his principles for uh, to fit into a new culture, um, if that's asking him to turn away from God. Yeah, absolutely. What else? Yeah, Chad. I think the first part
3: of verse 8, when it says, Daniel resolved. He was determined. He was committed. It was no backing off of his commitment that he made to God, his love for God. There's a lot of parallels I see with Daniel, with Joseph. When especially with Joseph, Potiphar's wife, threw herself on him, and, and he says, and ran, her coat was in her hand, he said, how can I sin this sin against my God? The determination that we need today, uh, commitment, responsibility, accountability for our actions, that, uh, that determinants, if I could use that word, yeah.
0: for us today. Yeah, Daniel is really making a commitment to, to what he's doing and commitment to uh, sticking to the right thing to do in a really, really hard situation. Um, that's maybe a good segue. We've got a few minutes left. What in particular do you all see as, like, applications that we can take into our, our walk as Christians from this chapter? What things stick out to you that are really tangible for us today? Yeah, Josh.
1: To make up our mind and stick to it.
0: Yeah, so like, we need to have the same degree of uh, conviction and sticking to our faith as Daniel has here. Yeah, absolutely. What else? Yeah, Alan. Um, I
1: guess it's kind of a similar point, but... Like Daniel doesn't ask for anything crazy. He asks for something reasonable. Let me do this for 10 days and let's give it a shot. And I think, similar to to Joshua's point about sticking to our guns when we have resolved to do something, but that that still means we can be reasonable about situations. Like for me, in my life, this plays out, and I am frequently invited to work gatherings. And so I have to make a decision: am I going to not go to eat anything? I'm going to go to some of that, and you know, most of my, my decision that has evolved around you know are people having a drink and eating dinner, or are they get completely intoxicated. I'm not going to figure out for that, right? And so trying to make goals that are reasonable um, that fit within the life that we, we do need to lead in some ways.
0: Yeah. Daniel's not trying to be self-righteous for the sake of being self-righteous. He's just trying to say, what is the most reasonable, practical way that I can serve God? He's not trying to be a rebel. He's not trying to take a stand against the king. He's just trying to do what he knows is the right thing to do and do that in the way that is uh, as humble as possible. Um, I think we've got about a minute left. One thing that I want to call out is in um, the beginning of this where it says, it talks about God gave Jehoiakim and the vessels into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And then um, he uses similar, similar language um, in verse nine, I think, when it talks about God giving Daniel favor in the eyes of the, the chief overseer. And then in verse 17, where it talks about God giving uh, Daniel and his friends knowledge and skill, and wisdom, and those things, that there's a parallel here between God giving uh, Judah into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, and God basically causing bad things, or allowing punishment to come upon Judah, and God also giving favor to Daniel and his friends. And I think that's the idea that God is in control across the board, um, and God is going to not only ensure that those who are doing wickedness are punished for that, but also that those who are following after him and who are faithful to him are taken care of. And I think we see that image in this story of Daniel. The nation of Judah has been completely devastated by Babylon, but even in Daniel's small story, we see an image of God's protection over Daniel, somebody who's trying to be faithful to God. God's taking care of him, and God's not only allowing him to survive, but to actually thrive in this environment. Um, That's all I've got for this evening. Barry will be back for chapter two next week. Thank you all for your comments.